This is an RNZ podcast. Let's talk about alcohol. You've got an announcement you want to make with us this morning. Tell me about what changes are on the way. Yes, so the issue with alcohol in New Zealand that we've got right now is that if you, sitting in, for example... That was the Justice Minister, Kiritapu Allen, responding to a question from TVNZ's political editor, Jessica Much Mackay, filling in as the host of TVNZ's Q&A show last Sunday. And the announcement the minister had lined up there for the show was a change to allow communities to have more say on the availability of alcohol for sale in their backyard. This year, uh, I'll be introducing uh, the part one, uh, I guess, phased approach. So we're going to be looking at all the procedural uh, barriers. That's how people participate in ensuring that the community voice is at the forefront. And the changes would also neuter the liquor industry's power to appeal local sales policies. And that's a policy which would resonate with much of Labour's base, you'd think. And having lined up that exclusive for TVNZ, it featured pretty prominently in their news bulletins later that day, including TVNZ's 6pm news. It may soon be easier for communities to oppose liquor companies setting up shop in their neighbourhood. That's a key message behind proposed changes to alcohol laws revealed today by the government. So the government would have been pretty pleased with that key message getting across like that after it was unveiled exclusively on Q&A. Jessica Mudge Mackay also pointed out that the government was, however, kicking the can down the road on the tricky subject of alcohol advertising, marketing and sports sponsorship in an interview that went on for more than 20 minutes. And all that was also discussed and debated on the news shows on Monday morning and in Wednesday's New Zealand Herald editorial, which warned that the right to challenge decisions like that is a principle of natural justice. So expect much more vigorous debate revved up by vested interests when that law change crops up next year. But on Q&A last weekend, Kiritapu Allen said she was ready for it. When you have lawyers flying in from internationally to come in and cross-examine a principal of a school in South Auckland, something's gone wrong. Now, no, I don't have any fear about any lobby interest groups. What I care about is that if I'm going to pull a regulatory tool, then I have to know and be very confident about what those consequences are. Kititapu Allen also told Q&A she was also getting on the tools to tweak other aspects of our justice system that she said were falling short. And we've been hearing a lot about some of those in the media lately. And Kititapu Allen also boldly told Q&A that this government could take credit for that too. I think it's great that we're seeing uh, more open reporting on um, what's happening behind closed doors in the courts. So that's as a consequence of us actually bolstering public interest journalism funding. And so I'm pleased to see that there is more uh, stories because they tell the stories of our victims. Incidentally, TVNZ's Q&A show is also at the moment funded from that same public interest journalism fund. And last Sunday, it gave the minister a pretty handy platform to explain her chosen programme of work, but also, crucially, for TVNZ's political editor to challenge her about that. On News Talk ZB on Monday morning, breakfast host Mike Hosking also challenged Kiritapu Allen about those alcohol law changes, but also this. Safari Sports, Victoria Street, Hamilton. He's not opening up his business again. He's been raided three times. He's sick of it. Nothing gets done. I gave a case on here last week of a bloke who was involved in three drive-by shootings. He's got Home D. So you get to drive by three different houses, shoot at them all, and you get Home D because you had a poor upbringing. Is that the sort of justice system you're proud of? Kiritapu Allen went on to tell Mike Hosking that the Justice Minister can't interfere in the sentencing of specific cases in which the judges have discretion, so giving him the right answer to the wrong question. 
and after Mike Hosking had thanked the Minister for her time on Monday, he reverted to his standard MO, raising other criticisms of the government after she was off the line and couldn't respond even if she wanted to. Closing his business permanently, we won't be here next year, isn't worth it. Third time this has happened, costs are too great to recover from. Do you know what he puts it down to? He says the government, I'm quoting him, the government is just making it too easy for them. There's just not consequences for the criminal. No surprise there from Mike Hosking, but on TVNZ's Q&A show 24 hours earlier, another surprise came right at the end of Kiritapu Allen's lengthy interview when Jessica Much Mackay asked her about controversial hate speech laws, which stalled under the previous minister responsible, Chris Farfoy, who simply stopped talking about the issue in his final months before he quit to become a lobbyist recently. In stark contrast to that, Kiritapu Allen told Jessica Much Mackay this. I guarantee that I'll be introducing law that I intend to have concluded and put into law by the next election, yes. Well, that's a big promise and a nice place to leave it. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Cheers. And that too was then a hot topic on Monday morning for the opposition political party leaders who told the media, more or less, they hate the idea of hate speech laws, though some said they were prepared to wait for the details. We'll have more on that here on Media Watch when those laws emerge and the limits of freedom of expression get an airing that will inevitably be pretty heated. But Jessica Much Mackay also put Kitatapu Allen on the spot on another area where the media has a strong vested interest. If you've ever watched news stories from a courtroom, you've probably heard terms like prominent New Zealander or well-known sports star to describe otherwise unnamed defendants. For many, name suppression seems to be applied unfairly and inconsistently. Name suppression is also an area where the judges also have discretion and they exercise it in a way that sometimes deeply frustrates the media. But Jessica Much Mackay probably wasn't expecting such a direct answer to this question. Is name suppression working? I don't think so. Kitatapu Allen went on to say it was unfair that high-profile and wealthy people could get name suppression for a range of reasons. What would she do about it? I've sought uh, urgent advice on this particular area, as I, I agree with you. I don't think it's just, I don't think it's fair, and I don't think that New Zealanders looking in on the system think that the system is working adequately either. Well, we'll see if urgent action follows that urgently requested advice. But that would have been music to the ears of many in the media who would love to be able to name more of the people who seek to keep their identity secret in court, and some of whom go to great lengths and expense to do so. As the minister pointed out in that interview, name suppression can be sought by anyone, but that's not how it pans out in our justice system. As we heard here on Media Watch last weekend, an RNZ investigation last year showed that Māori were charged with 43% of crimes, but only accounted for 17% of the interim and final name suppressions granted. Pākehā were charged with just over a third of crimes, but accounted for two-thirds of interim and final name suppression. Now, just this week, it was revealed that PR professional and former National Party President Michelle Bogue went as far as the Supreme Court to keep her name out of reports of a high-profile trial. Michelle Bogue told The Herald last week she had no regrets about how she handled the proceedings, which have gone on for more than three years, but The Herald also reported that her bid for name suppression had cost her close to $100,000. In his weekly media commentary, Nightly News, the former New Zealand Herald editor-in-chief Gavin Ellis pointed out that news media also spend a lot seeking to overturn name suppressions like this in the name of public interest. Stuff and the Herald's publisher NZME both fought in court, for example, to name Michelle Bogue. 
But by way of contrast, said Gavin Ellis, there was no question that another wealthy New Zealand businessman, Ron Briley, would be named after he was arrested at Sydney Airport and charged with possessing child pornography and prosecuted in New South Wales. This week, Gavin Ellis said 700 people were granted suppression orders in Australia back in 2018, but in the year to June, almost twice as many were granted name suppression here. So how come? Well, Section 200 of the Criminal Procedure Act sets out eight grounds on which a judge might grant name suppression to a defendant. It's automatic in cases of sexual offending in order to protect the victim's privacy, even if the victims want to waive their rights. But the most often cited one these days is the one that says this. Publication would be likely to cause extreme hardship to the person charged with, or convicted of, or acquitted of the offence, or any person connected with that person. Now, being well-known or well-connected does not of itself mean exposure of anyone's identity will result in extreme hardship, but good lawyers can conjure up a case for that. Last year, in the midst of lockdown, for example, the country was scandalised by an Auckland couple who travelled to their Wanaka holiday home and who then engaged a QC to successfully seek interim name suppression before charges were even laid, and the occupation of the man's parent, who turned out to be a judge, was also suppressed. To solve that problem, Gavin Ellis had this suggested solution. Rather than grant interim suppression, courts should be emphasising the presumption of innocence until found guilty. In other words, a person's reputation remains intact until there is a good cause, a conviction, for it to be diminished. Well, that sounds fair, but would it be in all cases? To take the example of Michelle Bogue, she had been due to appear as a Crown witness in that trial of a well-known businessman who was eventually found guilty of sexual assault and received a prison sentence, but whose name is still suppressed because he's appealed his convictions. Michelle Bogue did, via her lawyers, deny any involvement in the criminal conspiracy, which eventually led to that, and she insisted her reputation would be unjustly damaged by disclosure because her name had been misused by another PR professional who was caught up in the case, that being Jovan Gulter, who was not prosecuted because he supplied crucial evidence as a Crown witness. So, even if it seems unfair if others without the means to pursue name suppression don't have the option, is it any less fair for those who do, given the media's appetite for such stories? I asked the University of Canterbury's Professor of Law, Ursula Chia. I wouldn't be saying the system's not working. This is uh, something that's brought up with me every year for the same reasons, and each time I still respond that I don't think it's broken. And if the Minister's getting urgent advice about it, I hope she's being referred to the Law Commission report on this matter back before 2011, which was the last time this was looked at very closely by the Commission. They did a good job. The uh, Criminal Procedure Act was amended and a special part was put into it dealing specifically with suppression. So that's the system we've got now. Um, I believe it's working okay. I mean, no system is perfect. Uh, The system is based on open justice. Criminal trials, of course, run within the system. They're intended to uh, allow the state to prosecute crime uh, in an open atmosphere. But within that system, the accused person is entitled to fair trial. Uh, Suppression operates as an exception to the open open justice principle. So I believe that although occasionally perhaps um, the odd judge gets it wrong, Uh, the system is working okay. But Gavin Ellis, uh, former editor-in-chief at the New Zealand Herald, he's pointed out this week that roughly 
twice as many interim and final suppression orders ordered in this country than in Australia, uh, a country with five times roughly the population. I mean, doesn't that make us an outlier if courts are uh, ordering that many name suppressions? Um, New Zealand is unusual in the world in that we have suppression and um, most other jurisdictions don't have it. Uh, They have different ways of dealing with issues of fair trial and so on. Uh, but they still have to do that in some way. That's the issue for any um, government that might be looking at changing suppression laws. But suppression laws were brought in in New Zealand back in the 1920s, and it's said that that was traced from some well-meaning probation officers who wanted to, the law to protect first-time offenders, but apparently um, when the legislation was drafted it became more broad than that and we've had that system since then. Now, um, what bothers me is that the media, when they report on suppression and about suppression, are completely self-interested and don't acknowledge um, their bias in this respect. And uh, so I think the reporting about it is often extreme and exaggerated. It's often not backed up by um, numbers and figures. But I am interested to hear what Gavin Ellis is saying about the numbers compared with Australia and New Zealand. Um, we did some comparative work here after our new legislation was passed in 2011 to look at whether numbers of suppressions granted in New Zealand dropped uh, um, after the legislation as opposed to before it. And although we weren't able to finish that work, what we, the results we did get did indicate that numbers had dropped. So the legislation had had an effect of, um, I think, focusing judges' minds on the grounds for suppression, the fact that it's meant to be exceptional, um, all of those things. And I do think it had that good effect. But it does seem, leaving aside the raw numbers, uh, it does seem unjust, doesn't it, if, uh, as the media and the minister seem to be agreeing in that interview last weekend, there are several grounds which people who have good lawyers can make a persuasive case that the exposure, the publication of of their name and identity will cause them uh, disproportionate harm. The reputation of people who have wealth and status will be higher than uh, lower economic social groups or professions that pay less? First of all, everybody, of course, is entitled to apply for suppression, but they have to um, make out grounds that show they would suffer extreme hardship. It's not just undue, uh, embarrassing effects. Now, to focus on the argument about uh, people with money, rich people um, doing better, um, uh, that's a strange argument because it's it's a um, red herring in terms of suppression, in my view. Well, but it's people, it's people with status, though, isn't it? Status, maybe if we're looking at professions and people who have something connected to their name that's of value and might lose it. So anyone who is in a high-paying professional job or holds public office or a sports person, you know, we know there's been lots of cases like that where people have had at least interim name suppression given. And that, that doesn't seem fair if you're uh, of a, a profession that seems not to have uh, that sort of status attached to it. All right. First of all, Colin, um, almost everybody will get interim name suppression under the system. They're entitled to it um, in the initial stages. Um, And that is because the law is intended to let them go home, talk to their families, uh, let them know what's happened, put their affairs in order and so on. Um, The issue for them is when they come back into the system and that's when they have to make any grounds to keep that suppression going. So I think we have to make that clear, just getting interim suppression uh, and apparently getting it, you know, pretty automatically, that actually is available to everybody. The second thing is that this is an access to justice issue. It's not just 
connected to suppression. It applies to uh, anybody wanting access to legal advice to engage with the legal system. Um, and that problem has always been there and continues to be there. And if this government can fix that up, that would be a great thing. Um, but there seems to be a view that getting suppression somehow changes the outcome to your trial and, and helps you get off or, or helps you, you know, means the legal system will treat you in uh, an easier way than people who don't. That is not correct. Suppression gives you freedom from being exposed in the media and freedom from public shame. And in some way, that is seen as uh, being another form of punishment that people should be put through and that people should be entitled to, if they are a victim of an offence, be entitled to make sure that the perpetrator, who has not yet been through the justice system, should somehow be publicly shamed and suppression interferes with that. Now, I just don't hold to those arguments at all. It is the justice system that is there to try and then punish people. It is not up to a sort of public stocks process that should happen either due to media coverage or not. The minister in that interview seemed to be agreeing with the principle that it was unfair the way things are, yep. that people of means were more likely to get suppression uh, and, and uh, people of lower status income uh, would not. If, that, if, if changes were made to equalise that, does yes. that in itself mean that it was out of balance for fair trial rights? Yes. Uh, well, it depends what the minister or how the minister is intending to change things. Um, she could solve that problem quite simply by making sure that uh, special forms of legal aid are available to people who can't get access to lawyers who need suppression, and then in theory they would get it any time um, they're able to make the grounds just like anybody else. So that's one thing that could be done. But if um, the baby is chucked out with the bathwater and suppression orders are somehow uh, reduced extremely or, or eliminated, um, there would be huge issues around fair trial, and uh, that's why I don't think one can be done without the other. Uh, if you're going to throw out suppression orders, uh, there's no way that you can do that without still making sure that fair trial rights are protected. Otherwise, the basic need for the justice system to try crime on our behalf uh, would be um, com completely destroyed. Well, you mentioned there that uh, the media have a big vested interest in all of this that they often don't acknowledge, uh, which is, I guess, you know, that they want to be able to make public uh, the names of people in these cases because uh, there will be public interest in uh, the media content they can create from it. But um, they would probably believe that uh, that aligns with the public interest in open justice and knowing um, the, the names of people. And as long as reporting is responsible, then that would be fair enough. Um, and they'd be right about that, and the current legislation allows for that because when a judge um, has an application for suppression in front of them, they have to follow a two-stage process. They have to, first of all, work out whether it looks as though there's going to be one of what we call the threshold issues, extreme hardship, that sort of thing. Um, and then, in the second stage, they weigh up the competing interests of the applicant and the public, and they take into account all of the context, and that'll include how serious the is, the views of the victims are taken into account then, and public interest in knowing the character of the offender, all of those sorts of things, and open justice is also part of that. Uh, second stage of the test as well. So I would argue that the current system allows for that to happen. And finally, uh, the media would often 
possibly believe or say uh, they are on the side of victims, in a sense, and you know they would acknowledge that you know in the case of sexual offending, we know uh, there's automatic suppression because uh, that protects the victim's uh, privacy rights. But uh, do you think the media don't often acknowledge that when suppression is granted, there could be other people like family members of the accused, associates, the businesses they work for, they could all be victims of the exposure of the name of someone. Uh, and yeah. that the, the media and their desire to make things public uh, in, what, in what they believe is a public interest are overlooking those sorts of victims? Yes, I do think they are. I mean, the most well-known argument is the one about extreme hardship and fair trial is another one. But um, casting suspicion on other people it can also be taken into account. Um, it's also extreme hardship, not only of the person charged, but any person connected to that person, and that would cover family or, or, or friends or colleagues. They've tried to put all of those things into the legislation as well, but you're absolutely right. The media don't acknowledge that enough. Gavin Ellis did also say in his uh, media comment this week, uh, rather than grant interim name suppression, courts should be emphasising the presumption of innocence until found guilty. In other words, a person's reputation remains intact until there is good cause, a conviction, for it to be diminished. Um, I mean, that's reflecting the media's point of view, obviously, but do, do you think that's a bit uh, sort of, I don't know, idealistic or something, just, just by you know reminding people, look, innocent until found guilty, but meanwhile, yeah. here are all the details. Do you, do you think that's unrealistic? Yes, well, I think that's an interesting suggestion, and it would be lovely if that could follow. But, of course, the presumption of innocence exists already, and, and people are well aware of it, and it doesn't seem to make any difference to the nature of discussion on social media, for example, that, that kind of public shaming um, scenario I was talking about. Um, and it's what we talk about within law, no smoke without fire, kind of cancels that out, unfortunately. People do tend to assume guilt rather than assume innocence. Um, and uh, w- yeah, it'd be great if it would be solved by by courts just emphasising that. Um, I'm not sure uh, who they'd be emphasising it to. Everyone involved in the trial, um, but then of course media have to report that and get it out there to the public because that's where the problem is. I think. Bit of a surprise right at the end of that interview on TVNZ's Q and A show uh, last weekend, um, the minister revealing she wants the hate speech laws up and running and uh, on the books by uh, the end of um, this parliament. Uh, That's a surprise, given that the the previous minister seemed not to want to take it anywhere and it's going to be controversial. Were you, were you surprised to hear her make that, uh, that commitment? Yes, I was quite surprised. I thought that uh, the hate seat issue had yeah, been, been put on the back burner, at least, and um, I, I think... Um, uh, she's uh, the goal. I think is quite a challenging one for her. Um, uh, hate speech, really difficult area. I could talk about that all day. But uh, it's interesting that the government's very interested in sorting out hate speech, but is quite happy for name suppression to come off to subject people to hate speech, even though they haven't been found guilty of an offence at that stage. And I'd be interested to see, very interested to see what the outcome is. That was the University of Canterbury's Professor of Law, Ursula Chia, talking to me there about proposals to change name suppression in our courts.